Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Imagine if you had a day or two to live. What would you do as you meet with your loved ones? What would you say to them? Would you give them something? You know, perhaps you would tell them how much you love them and care for them. And perhaps if you are, uh, if you have some possessions, um, you know, you might give that to some of your loved ones. But beyond all that, as a Christian, what is the most important thing that we possess? That we can share with others, and especially our loved ones. I would say this, it is the true knowledge of God in and through Christ Jesus. There is nothing more glorious and more valuable than that knowledge of God in and through Jesus Christ. And it is the most valuable gift that you can give anyone as well. You know, I had the, I experienced this uh, in, a, in a very personal way, even as my father died, about four years ago, uh, he was diagnosed with cancer, and uh, uh, towards the end of his life, the the last couple of weeks or so, he was very labored in his breathing. He experienced a lot of pain. He was very confused a lot of the times. And yet, through all of that pain and confusion, was seeing how my father had an eagerness to share Christ with others in his confusion. It made me marvel at the grace of God in my father's life, even to the end. And I think more than anything else that my earthly father has given me, it is that memory of his, <laughs> of his love for Christ, even till his dying breath, that I hold dearly. You know, in these 
last couple of chapters in Genesis 48 and 49. These are the last moments of the life of Jacob. And he's nearing death. Now we've seen this man, Jacob. He's, he's been through so much. I mean, more than half of, I would say all, close to half of Genesis is about Jacob and his family. And we've seen uh, what a scoundrel of a man this Jacob was and how God has been working in the life of this man for many years. And yet when you think of the life of Jacob, what would you think of as the shining moment of Jacob where he exuded faith in the Lord. You know, perhaps you, you might think of the time when he wrestled with God at Peniel and then he, he surrenders himself and, uh, you know, his, God touches his hip and his hip is out of joint and he submits to him and how his, he fully trusts in God from then on, even though there's still ups and downs and how then after that, as he goes to, goes to meet Esau, you know, he's standing right in front of his family, this, this crippled man, you know, most likely walking in pain, standing right in front of his family to, to meet Esau. Perhaps you would say, yeah, that was a great act of faith. Or maybe the time when Jacob by faith, left the land of promise. And then he went to live the rest of his life in Egypt, outside the land of promise, to be with his son Joseph. Perhaps you would think of that as the greatest act of faith in the life of Jacob. But you know, the Bible actually records one of Jacob's acts of faith, one of his greatest acts of faith as what is happening here in Genesis 48. Just turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Now often called as the hall of faith, where the saints of old, the example of their faith is talked about Look at verse 21 and what is said of Jacob. Of all the things in Jacob's life, it says in verse 21, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Of all the things in Jacob's life, this is what God wanted to highlight as one of Jacob's greatest acts of faith as to what is happening here in Genesis 48. Jacob blessing Joseph's sons. Now last week we 
saw of how Jacob's family had come to settle in Egypt. And how through Joseph, the family prospers in Egypt. And how through Joseph, Egypt is also saved. And, you know, for us as believers, it, it was a reminder to us of not to trust in worldly powers and the Egypts of this world and political powers, but to trust in the seed of Abraham, who ultimately is the Lord Jesus Christ, and to hope in him and not anything in this world, for even Egypt had been brought down to her knees before, and it was Joseph who had to help Egypt out. Now we come to Genesis 48, and I would say there's a few things that we can learn from Genesis 48. Well, first of all, we see the incredible faith of Jacob in this chapter. And then secondly, we see even just historically, when we think of the 12 tribes of Israel, why there is no tribe of Joseph, but there is only the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh, and this chapter will tell us that. And there's also something happening here in terms of patterns of how God works, particularly under this old covenant regime, which will then be even in a more fuller sense seen as we can relate to that under the new covenant of how God will act. So I've titled this morning sermon simply as Joseph, Jacob, pardon me, blesses Joseph's sons and We're going to look at this chapter under two headings. Firstly, we're going to look at the adoption. That's in verses 1 through 12. And then in verses 13 to 22, we'll look at the blessing. So the adoption, Jacob adopting Joseph's sons, and then Jacob then blessing Joseph's sons. So the adoption, verse 1 and 2. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. So Jacob at this point has lived another 17 years after coming to Egypt under the supervision of his son Joseph. He's 147 years old at this point. And again, this is evidence of God's grace, as I mentioned last week, where for the first 17 years of his life, Jacob was able to care for his beloved Joseph for the first 17 years of Joseph's life. And now, in a wonderful symmetry, God, by his grace, has allowed Jacob now to be taken care of by his beloved son for the last 17 years of his life. 
And now Joseph hears that his father is ill, is what the text says. It's, it's a word that can mean worn out, worn out from either aging or from sickness. So Jacob is old and worn out, his eyesight is impaired, and he's very close to death at this point. And when Joseph hears that his father is dying, he takes his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, with him. Now I want you to understand, these sons are are at least 19 years old. Because remember, these sons were born to Joseph in Egypt during the years of plenty. And then we know that by the time Jacob and his sons moved to Egypt, it was at least the second year of famine. So that's by then these boys would have been at least two years old. And then now another 17 years have passed. So that would put these sons of Joseph at at least 19 years old, if not a little bit older. So they're not little boys. And these sons of Joseph who are born in Egypt, they're they're living far away from Jacob's family. You know, they're living with Joseph, most likely somewhere near the palace, because he's the second in command of Egypt, living with all the luxuries of Egypt. And on top of that, I need you to understand that these sons weren't full-blooded Hebrews like Jacob or Joseph or any of the other sons of Jacob. They were half Egyptian and half Hebrew. And it's quite likely then that Joseph is bringing not just himself but these two sons of his to make sure that They are blessed by his father Jacob, so that they too would be partakers of the covenant blessings of God, and that they wouldn't be lost to Egypt somehow. Now verse 3 says, "And, And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, In the land of Canaan and bless me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So old, frail, worn out Jacob gathers up some strength and he says this to Joseph. Now, Luz here is the old name for Bethel. Bethel, if you remember, was the name that Jacob gave to the place that is called Luz. And twice God had appeared to Jacob at Bethel. You know, to just jog your memory, the first time was when Jacob was running away from his brother Esau. And he was going to leave the promised land. And then God appeared to him in that stairway and gave him those blessings. The second time was when he returned after 20 years in Padan Aram as he was entering the land. And so both times, when it was first given and then further reaffirmed or reiterated, 
God gave him these Abrahamic blessings that his offspring would multiply and that they would be given the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. And so Jacob first rehashes that and says, see, God has blessed me this way. God appeared to me at Luz and has blessed me with the Abrahamic promises. And essentially, Jacob is saying, I am the heir of the Abrahamic promises. And notice, but notice what he says next. Verses 5 and 6. And now your sons, he says to Joseph, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. And they shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. Now we might quickly read through this and miss what is actually taking place here. You know, when J Jacob says to Joseph, your sons are mine, we might just think, oh yeah, that's because Jacob's the grandfather, and he's just saying, they're mine, they're my grandsons. But that's not what's going on here. Notice again what he says there. After he says, these sons are mine, he says, Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Meaning Joseph's sons will have equal standing as Jacob's own sons. Really what is going on here is Jacob is adopting Joseph's sons as his own so that they will have a share in the inheritance of his sons. In fact, Reuben, because he slept with one of Jacob's concubine wives, he lost his birthright as the firstborn and the double blessing that would come with the firstborn. And even Simeon, the, the secondborn, he lost his position and Levi too because they massacred the Shechemites after Dinah was violated. So the firstborn right the double blessing or the double portion of the promised land is now given to Joseph, or more specifically to Joseph's sons and giving them equal standing with Jacob's other sons. Just look with me how this is recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2. 1 Chronicles 5, 1 and 2. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, sons of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became the strong among his brothers, and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So Joseph's sons are being adopted by Jacob and they get Joseph's firstborn inheritance, the double blessing of the land. 
And Jacob even adds that if Joseph were to have other children after this, that they would be included among the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Now Jacob's memory turns to his dearly loved late wife, Rachel. In verse 7 he says, As for me, when I came from Padan, short for Padan Aram, to my sorrow Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So Jacob remembers at this time his dear wife, dear late wife, who, who Rachel, she had an untimely death giving birth to Benjamin. So much so that she couldn't even be buried in the ancestral cave of Machpelah. She was buried in Ephrath or Jerusalem, although this was still within the promised land. And Jacob couldn't have any more sons with his beloved wife, Rachel. But now he's standing in front of Joseph, Rachel's firstborn son. And by adopting his two sons, Jacob is now honoring Rachel and honoring Joseph, making them direct heirs of the promise. It's almost like now Rachel's got more sons now, not just two sons. Now look at what happens next. Verses 8 through 12. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could, he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. Yes, Jacob is frail, he's worn out, he cannot see well, but he does know Joseph is there and he's there with his sons. It's not like he, you know, 17 years, he's been in Egypt and he doesn't know who Joseph's sons are. And really why he's asking, more so than his impaired eyesight, is because it's all part of the legal adoption process. I want you to look at the whole legal process of adoption that is taking place here. First, Jacob introduces himself as one who has authority, as the one who has gotten the direct promises of Abraham from God. He was blessed by God with these promises as Luz, showing who he is. Next, he mentions the intent to adopt. After that, by asking the question, who are these? 
It's an official asking of the identities of the ones being adopted. You know, you, you can almost think like a wedding scene. You know, the, the person declares who he is, there's an intent to, of marriage, and then, you know, who gives this bride to, uh, away, and, and uh, all those kind of things. It's all part of the formal process. And then, as Jacob is seated on his bed, he kisses and embraces these two sons. And scholars even suggest that as he's sitting down like that, and as he's embracing these two sons, they're placed near his knees. And it's akin to giving birth. And it's a legal gesture or a legal symbol of finalizing that adoption process. And then lastly, Joseph bows before Jacob and concludes this whole process of adoption. So that's what's taking place here. So in this way, Jacob legally and officially adopts Joseph's sons as his own sons. This is very significant because as far as these sons of Joseph are concerned, they will have the full privilege of being sons of Joseph, full rights of being sons of Jacob, pardon me. They become joint heirs of the covenant blessings of God's people along with Jacob's other sons. The inheritance and the promised land to belong, belong to them just like Jacob's other sons. Now you might think, okay, that's great, you know, that they've been included officially and legally as part of the covenant people of God and they have these blessings. But I think to understand the privilege of this for those of us who are Christians as new covenant believers, you know, there's a similar pattern that takes place. An adoption that takes place under the new covenant as well. Let me read a few passages. Part of it is what we read this morning. Ephesians 1, 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of this world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for what? For adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Galatians 4, 4-6 But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and of a son, then an heir through God. Romans eight fifteen to 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer for Him, in order that we might also be glorified with Him. You know, if you're a Christian, I really want you to understand the privilege of God adopting us. Because you, you see, we were not God's people. We were enemies of God. Not even like half-breeds and kind of related. No, we were actually enemies of God. Rebelling against God. Blaspheming God. We were objects of God's wrath. And yet, God in His love and His mercy sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to be crushed on the cross in our place. As he bore the wrath of God on himself to pay the price for our sin. So that we could be saved and made right with God. Amen, amen, amen. That is a wonderful truth. But that is not all what God has done through Christ. He's gone one step further and then adopted us into his family and made us his son and his daughter with Jesus as our elder brother. Giving us all the privileges and blessings of being his child. Every blessing in Christ now belongs to every son and daughter of God. As God's children, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, as 1 Peter 1.4 says. And what is this inheritance? An inheritance that involves eternal life, a life of joy and peace and righteousness, a perfection, rewards, fellowship with the triune God and everything else that God has in store because we have been made sons and daughters of God, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Do you understand this privilege of adoption, Christian? That we who were objects of God's wrath have not only been made right with Him through Christ, like we have been made right with a judge. It's not merely that we are now acceptable in God's sight, as glorious as that is. It is so much more than that. It is now that the judge comes and hugs us, and we have been made his sons and his daughters. There's that closeness in that relationship and the privilege of being his son and his daughter, being made co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And why adopted? Not because of anything in us. Simply on the basis of Jesus. One John three one says this, and I know it only in the KJV because that's how I learned it as a kid. 
Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. See, there's no greater privilege than not just being made right with God, but being adopted as a child of God into his family. Oh, what love God has shown to us through Jesus Christ to make us his children. And what a guaranteed hope and inheritance awaits us. I mean, what an awesome God we serve, right? It should just cause us to just say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you've done in and through Christ. Thank you for making me your son and your daughter. And thank you for every privilege for being your son and daughter, eternally secure in that. So here we see, because of Joseph, Jacob adopts Ephraim and Manasseh to be his own sons. And they become co-heirs of the covenant promises of God along with all the other sons of Jacob. And now that they're adopted, Jacob now moves on to bless them. And that brings us to our second point in verses 13 to 22. Verse 13. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. So biblically, the right hand, it is symbolic of power and authority and, and prominence or importance. So the one who receives the blessing from the right hand gets the greater blessing and the birthright is given through the right hand, the blessings of the birthright. And so what's happening here is Joseph wants the firstborn son, Manasseh, to get the birthright and the greater blessing. So he brings him to Jacob's right hand while the younger one, Ephraim, Jacob brings to, Joseph brings to Jacob's left hand. But interestingly, what happens is, Jacob crosses his hand. He stretches his right hand over the younger son, Ephraim, and then puts his left hand over the head of the older one, Manasseh. And he blesses them. Now we'll come back to that as we see the following verses, but I want you to see how what Jacob says as he blesses these two sons. Verse 15 and 16. 
And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life, all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So Jacob is invoking God to bless these sons. But notice again the the threefold descriptions of God in, in this invocation. First, he says, the same God before whom my fathers walked. That's the same God that now I'm calling on to bless these two sons. Second, he says, the, the God who shepherded me. You know, I think this is so significant particularly knowing that Jacob himself was a shepherd. No doubt Jacob is recognizing, you know, identifying himself with the kind of sheep that would often wander away. That difficult sheep who just wouldn't stay within, the, within, you know, close by his shepherd. But he says, but God has cared for me and provided for me and shepherded me all my life to this very day. What a wonderful testimony. Just as a side note, this is the first reference to God as shepherd. And this is what then King David will pick up and then he will write Psalm 23. And then this is what then the prophets will pick up from this to describe the Lord Yahweh himself as a shepherd. And then finally Jesus comes in the New Testament and he says, I am the good shepherd. Third, he says, the angel who redeemed me from all evil. See, after he wrestled with God at Peniel, If you remember, Jacob said, I have seen the face of God. Where, you know, the Lord, there's the Lord, but there's also the angel of the Lord who is also God himself. See, the angel of the Lord, many scholars believe this is a reference to that pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, God the Son. And so Jacob says, this angel saved me and rescued me from all evil. Rescued me from Esau. Rescued me from Laban. Rescued me from the Canaanites after Simeon and Levi massacred the Shechemites. And I would even say, rescued Jacob from Jacob himself. The evil or sinful person that he was and making him into the Israel that he is on this day as we see him in Genesis 48. Jacob says, God has redeemed me from all evil. 
mean, in the last moments of his life, this is a very different Jacob. Jacob is a man who had gone through a lot of hardships in his life. And as a result, because of all the hardships, there was one point when we bemoaned his life saying, everything is against me. Even after he came to Egypt, and even after seeing his long-lost son, Joseph, as, as the second-in-command of Egypt, Jacob, when he speaks to Pharaoh, was the one who said, few and evil are my days here on this earth, this sojourn on, my, on this earth. And we saw that last week. Now, another 17 years have passed since he has said that to Pharaoh. And in his last moments, Jacob's perspective is completely different. This is the God who, who my fathers have walked with. This is the God who has shepherded me all along, even to this day. And this is the God who has redeemed me from all evil. Not Few and evil are my days anymore. No, this is the God who has redeemed me from all evil. His perspective is completely different. It's solely fixed on God and God's goodness. And even though life has been hard for Jacob and he has failed so many times, he's bearing a beautiful testimony to the faithfulness of God. When we go through life, life in this sin-cursed world, we will experience a lot of pain and hurt, either because of our own sin, or the sin of others, or just the difficult circumstances that we find ourselves in because it's a sin-cursed world. And it's easy and natural to become bitter and disgruntled about life. About life and other people and everything else you see and even about yourself, a life full of regrets as you're thinking through all the failings in your life. But you know, that's, that's very human, that's very natural. But it is supernatural. Because it is only through the eyes of faith can we see through our failings and the difficulties of this life of how God is faithful to us and continues to be. And it spurs us on as we see God's faithfulness and who He is to continue on in hope in this life and in turn be a faithful witness to this great God to those around us. You know, I just want to make a note for those of us who are parents. You know, we, we all know we, we fail and sin against our children regularly. And as far as our following Christ, oh, we do it imperfectly. And then we think, then what hope do our children have? 
I mean, we're following Christ imperfectly. We fail and sin against our children regularly. Then what hope do our children have? What are we meant to do? Well, certainly not focus on ourselves. But we are to point our children to the hope that we have in Christ, which ultimately rests in the unchanging faithfulness of God. And really, it's only because of the faithfulness of God, those of us who are Christians this morning, have any hope of being transformed from the inside out. And have any hope of becoming like a Jacob as we see him now from what he was before. Simply because of the faithfulness of God. This morning I would say, for those of you who are listening, if you're not a Christian, and not just children who are seated here, but even adults, I want to tell you that despite all your sin and your failure, you can be saved from the penalty of sin that is going to come as Christ will return. If you recognize your sin today, friend, if you recognize that you stand guilty before a righteous God and you deserve only judgment, then I want to tell you, friend, that God has been gracious and merciful and faithful to provide a Redeemer and a Savior in Jesus Christ. Turn to Jesus and trust in Him and what He has done on the cross, and you will be saved. And if you say you believe in Jesus this morning, then I would say, turn from your sin and follow after him. Knowing as you follow him that through Christ, you are not only made right with God, then you are adopted into God's family with all the privileges of a child of God, and he will keep you to the end, eternally secure in his hands. So Jacob here testifies to the faithfulness of God as he blesses Joseph's sons with his hands crossed over. Now look at what ensues. Verse 17. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. And he shall also become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, will pronounce blessing, saying, God will make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. 
For Joseph, as he sees Jacob's right hand crossed like this over the younger son, Ephraim, Joseph is displeased. So much so that Joseph comes and tries to move Jacob's hand to put it on Manasseh's head, saying, this is not the way, father. Ephraim's not the firstborn son. Manasseh is. But Jacob responds by saying, I know my son. I know my son. And he doesn't move his hand. See, Joseph here is thinking according to worldly customs. That the older son would get the birthright and the greater blessing. That's just the normal order of things. And at this point, Joseph is ignorant of God's way. But Jacob, on the other hand, as he's come to the end of his life, he would have understood the way God works. You know, it was Isaac and not Ishmael, the older son who was blessed. In his own life, it was he, Jacob the younger, and not Esau who was blessed. Even with his sons, Reuben, his firstborn, had forfeited the birthright. And the blessing of the firstborn. And so by now understanding full well God's ways, Jacob submits to it. And by faith, he gives the right hand blessing to the younger son, Ephraim. See what this, there's a principle here, I believe, that is being taught to us. And it is that God's grace and blessing does not operate on the basis of worldly expectations and worldly ideas of power and deservedness. That's not how God operates. God's grace and blessing is never, ever deserved by human right. It is never gained that way. God's grace and blessing is always undeserved and never merited. And you know, and the wonderful thing is that's why there's hope of God's grace even for the most wicked, undeserving sinner in this world because this is how God operates. You know, this scene here, is even showing how at the end of Genesis, God is reversing things as well. Remember many years ago, Isaac was the one, his father was the one who was blind. And Jacob was the one who schemed to get the blessing. And it resulted in so much of conflict and chaos and, and the family essentially divided. Now here in this scene, Jacob is the one who's blind. But there's no deception taking place here for Jacob. Instead, Jacob acts only by faith in God, going against all cultural expectations, choosing the younger over the older. And what you see is, even between the brothers, there is no conflict. There's harmony between these two brothers even though what he has done is so 
countercultural. So God is bringing a reversal of things as well here. And really, when you move forward in Old Testament history, what God promised comes to pass. Because the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh will grow in number, while the tribe of Simeon and Reuben will reduce in size. In fact, particularly the tribe of the the younger son, Ephraim, will flourish so much that, you know, when Israel is divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Ephraim will take the lead in the northern kingdom. So much so that there will be instances where Ephraim and Israel, they are used interchangeably because Ephraim has become so prominent and so influential and has flourished so much in the northern kingdom. Now that this is done, look at Jacob's last words now in this section. Verse 21. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die. But God will be with you and bring you again to the land of your fathers. Again, we see Jacob's faith and hope in God's faithfulness regarding his promises. That though Jacob is going to die, Jacob is saying to Joseph and his sons, God will still be with you and he will take care of you and he will bring you back to the land of your fathers in Canaan. And he's certain of it. And so certain is he of this that Jacob adds in verse 22, Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Now this is difficult to understand what exactly or when this actually took place. But we do know from Genesis 33:19 that Jacob did purchase land from the Amorites from the sons of Hamor for 100 pieces of money. But at that point, he simply purchased it. There was no battle. There was no conquest of the land or anything of that sort. So I, I just think at some point there was a battle and there's not mention of it in Scripture. For whatever reason, God hasn't disclosed that to us. But the point is this, that Jacob gave this piece of land in Canaan to Joseph, almost as a down payment, because he's so certain that God will take you back to that land. I just want you to think of this for a moment. Jacob, the second most powerful person in all of Egypt, living with all the luxuries of Egypt, and here, frail, old, worn out, Jacob is saying, here's a mountain slope back in the land of Canaan for you. Is that significant? Yes. Because 
from a worldly standard, it might not look very significant. But from a spiritual standpoint, it is showing his faith in God and his promises. And so sure is he that this is what he promises to his son, Joseph, as a down payment for what God will do. So as we come to the end of this chapter, I just want you to note the incredible faith of Jacob in this chapter. Uh, You know, the start of it, it said that Jacob was old and frail and worn out and going to die. Then he hears Joseph has come with his sons and he's mustered up all his strength in these last moments. Why? Because he wants to adopt Joseph's sons so that they wouldn't be lost to the riches of Egypt. So confident, so so full of faith is he in God that he wants to associate these half-Egyptian, half-Hebrew sons of Joseph to be closely associated and really be named after him and associated with these nomadic, despised shepherds in Egypt because of his faith in God. It's like, no, you will not be princess in Egypt. But you, what is more important is, yes, though despised as we are, though an abomination we are in Egypt, because of his faith in God, he believed it was more important for them to be counted and adopted into this despised shepherd family that God had brought into Egypt because this was the family of God. And if that's not enough, because he fully understood that, he, he adopts them and then, and yet when he calls on God, he's not now, half, you know, glass half full and cloudy life and everything is gray. No, the, the sun has risen. And all he says is, God is faithful. He will keep you. He's my shepherd who's been with me. He's he's the angel who's redeemed me from all evil. Again, showing his incredible faith in God, despite every difficulty that has happened along the way. And if that's not enough, then he, the way he blesses the two sons, countercultural. Again, shows his faith in God because he under, he's beginning to understand God's ways. And that's why he's blessing them this way, against expectations of the world order. And if that's not enough, despite all the riches of Egypt, he gives his princely son, the prince of Egypt, and their son saying, hey, that mountain slope back in the land of Canaan, that is yours because I believe in God and his promises. Don't trust in the wealth of Egypt. They are nothing. That is not ultimate reality. They will fade. But God's promises, and he is worth trusting in who he is and what he has said. Let me just end with this by saying, when you look at Jacob at the end of his life,
when you look at Jacob at the end of his life, he's just a frail old man. No land, nothing. As he's living where, you know, his, his beloved son and their family living in the luxury of Egypt. And yet he shows incredible faith in God and his promises. And he's essentially pointing to the fact that he is enough and his promises are enough. And that's all that I can give you. And that is everything that I can give to you more than anything else Egypt has to offer. And I think even for us, individually and even corporately as we see the life of Jacob, particularly in chapter 48, how are we to respond as we think of how God has been with us in and through Christ? We respond in thanks. We respond in worship. And, and I trust that individually and corporately that we would be known as a people who have such incredible faith in the God who has revealed himself in and through Christ of people that are hopeful till the very day we die. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the great and good God you are. Thank you again for your word. We thank you again for the history of how you have worked in the lives of your people many, many years ago. We thank you that you are an unchanging God and you continue to be faithful to your people in this new covenant age as well. Lord, we thank you for your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we've been freed from our sin. We've been acceptable in your sight. And now we've been adopted as your children. And every promise is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. So Lord, help us to live in faith and in hope till our dying days. For we simply want to give you the glory and we pray that you would use us as instruments to draw more people to yourself. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name.